Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of In Media's Mess. I'm Alanis. And I'm Clea. And we're glad to have you along. This week, we're taking a closer look at a media trope that everyone loves to hate, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And since this is a conversation that we figured could do with the insights of like an actual male human, we actually have a guest this week. So hello and welcome to our friend, Sean Lee. Hi, Sean. So it just says here, intro. I don't have an intro for myself. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Just say hi. <laughs> All you need to know is that Sean is a human that we trust and a friend who we regularly bother about films and TV. So this isn't really any different, only that it's recorded. So hi, Sean. Thanks for being here. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're glad to have you. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl discussion is something that we've had before, Sans podcast, which is why we thought of you. And yeah, I remember we talked about how differently we perceive the characters that we're going to talk about today and how much our perspectives have changed just by virtue of growing up. So we're very excited to dig a little deeper with you today. I am nervous and excited. All good. It's all good. Before we start, I guess we should quickly define what a Manic Pixie Dream Girl even is, just in case. So, it's a character trope that was coined by film critic Nathan Rabin in 2007 in reference to the film Elizabeth Town. And to quote his definition, it refers to that bubbly, shallow, cinematic creature that exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. In layman's terms, it's that fun, pretty, quirky female romantic lead who doesn't really have that much of a substantial personality, like her sole purpose is to further the narrative of the male protagonist. You don't even have to define it with like a dictionary or urban dictionary term. You just need to point to a character because they're always so idiosyncratic that I could just say, oh, think of Summer from 500 Days of Summer. And you'll immediately get a grasp of what that character, what the manic pixie dream girl trope is already. Right. I think it's more of like an iconography thing. For sure. So since you mentioned Summer from 500 Days of Summer, I think collectively that's, that was really our first touch point with the manic pixie dream girl because that was the conversation that surrounded the film. On the onset of the film's fame and sort of notoriety even, I think a lot of people started talking about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in a more nuanced way. People started rethinking what it meant, and there was a lot of talk generally about 500 Days of Summer and the characterization of Summer Finn. Yeah, it wasn't a new term because it's been around a few years before the release of 500 Days of Summer in 2009, but it definitely brought that trope to the forefront. And since for us three, that movie was our first real touch point with the trope, do you remember when you first saw the film or when you first saw the discussion that surrounded it? Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think I watched it as it was released. I think I just watched it like, um, what is that? Probably like late in high school. 
So, you know, kind of at the peak of my pubescence. I think at the time it came out, I, I remember it gained a lot of popularity online on sites like Nine Yag. Oh, wow. That's something I haven't heard in forever. It was that era, right? Because you'd always see the format of expectation versus reality. You know, it's a meme. People would relate to it and say, oh, this is me. This is all. La. I think that says a lot about the maturity and the experience of the audience that ate it all up. Though I wasn't on 9gag, I was on Tumblr, where there were plenty of aesthetic screen caps and GIF sets of the same format of expectations versus reality. So I remember seeing that and then watching the film because it was the thing to see. And I don't know, I don't think it really hit me in the romantic aspect as much, though I mean... If you know me, that's not a surprise. But it was still the theme of the film. And when it was released, at least in the Filipino context, it was a period of time where most jokes were who got jokes. Champing mm. end man, but you know, back then, yun kasi yung bohong bibig ng mga tao. And again, being me, I didn't really have much sympathy for Tom to begin with because I didn't relate to that, like that desperation for romantic love. So I did definitely maybe sympathize and latched onto Summer more just because I wasn't a fan of Tom. And I kind of felt like Summer was just doing her own thing. I didn't really villainize her. On my first watch, I wasn't really doing much character analysis, but I do remember like watching it later on, maybe a year or so after it came out, and basically coming to the same conclusion. Like I knew that Summer wasn't doing anything wrong, but it wasn't until much later on when I realized that Tom was actually that capital N, capital G nice guy. Right, yeah. So once that clicked, I understood the film in a much deeper way. Nice guy is exactly right. I didn't really know about that term yet when I watched the film, but I'm pretty sure I understood that, especially given that at like 6th, 7th grade, people, teenagers, were already moving into that territory. I don't know. What about you, Sean? On the camp that started with relating with Tom, it's it's funny because I think a lot of people also ended up watching the movie because they saw the memes and because it was riding on that who got culture. Who got culture is all about, you know, relating with the heartbreaks. That and the fact that the story is, you know, from Tom's perspective, primarily, or not even primarily, <laughs> it's actually from Tom's perspective. You kind of get baited in to empathizing with Tom. So I actually started um, on Team Tom thinking, oh yeah, that's that was, that was BS. Well, my turning point was only when I got into actual relationships and realized the dynamics of a romantic relationship and figuring out, you know what? There are parts of me that actually identify more with what Summer wanted rather than the cheesy romance that Tom wanted. Right. You kind of get baited into relating with whoever's point of view is being shared. And I think that one of the main reasons why there was such a large debate about this was because we were seeing everything from Tom's perspective. And so you don't necessarily think that the narrator who's kind of like lens you're seeing the film through is a bad guy. Your sympathy meter is automatically just like 
wired to him. And also because even though they say it's not a love story, you know, the film starts with like flashbacks, just like Tom and Summer, and you're like... Yeah, it does use romantic comedy devices all too well. So I definitely get that. But then, do we agree with the general consensus that Summer Finn is a manic pixie dream girl? I think she is only existing in the lens of Tom. And so when you empathize with Tom, you start seeing Summer as the manic pixie dream girl. But I think if you try to take a step back and look at the what happens in the film more objectively, you realize that, no, Summer's just a normal person. Yeah, she has like some quirks, but she's definitely not this enigmatic idiosyncratic character that we tend to associate the manic pixie dream girl with but i do think that that was the intention of the production that it's not too heavy-handed in showing how tom looked at summer in a very unrealistic idealized way you as the viewer kind of have to piece that together on your own which is a good thing because it's not downplaying the intelligence of the audience Yes, there were devices in the film and even a few lines that help you through that understanding. And yes, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Mark Webb have discussed this at length with interviews and stuff that, you know, this is Tom's immature view of a woman and of a relationship. But within the text of the film, it's not in your face necessarily. And that was a choice that I found interesting because Discussing this with friends in college really made me realize how different your perspective would be depending on your upbringing, because usually my girlfriends picked up on that much quicker than my straight male friends who kind of had to grow into that realization. And it was the same for me. And like, even though I didn't have the words at the time when I watched it, I did understand that on some level. So Aside from the textual analysis and context, maybe society at large just wasn't ready for that conversation yet until the film started it. You know, no one's um, viewing experience is necessarily the same. And I'm sure that like upon first watch, there were a couple of people who were able to kind of pick it up and like understand what they were trying to do with the deconstruction of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But I think because it was treated so strongly in the lens, using the lens of like Tom's point of view, a lot of stuff kind of gets muddled in the translation. And so even at maybe the halfway point of the film where the deconstruction really starts to happen, again, the sympathy meter kind of kicks in and you kind of see Tom as like a, um, a victim of what's been going on versus actually seeing, you know, the reality of what was going on with his relationship with Summer. I feel like 500 Days of Summer was a turning point for a lot of, a lot of reasons. Right, because again, it started the conversation. And that was when people started using the lens of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl to kind of look at works and pieces of media retroactively to see if there were any other characters that would fit that description or that character. And one of the characters that was viewed through that was Audrey Hepburn's Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I now realize is a little bit unfair. But what about you guys? Because I don't actually know when your first touch point was with this film in particular. Well, for me, I first watched it in college. I watched it for a film class. And 
I feel like that's a little bit of a cheat because I walked into it sort of prepared to hyperanalyze. Like, I had heard about it before but never really looked into it before that first watch. But I essentially came into it with the headspace of, I'm going to be looking at every single detail. How about you, Sean? Because I don't know, Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of gets thrown into our faces as a girl. Right, yeah. Like the iconography again, it's the little black dress, you know, the ladylike aura of Audrey Hepburn, etc, etc. Just as a side note of how much this gets thrown into our faces. When I was in high school, I went on a summer program in New York, and there was a literal breakfast at Tiffany's activity that you could sign up for, where you'd wake up at 6 or 7 a.m., dress all pretty, and go grab breakfast at Tiffany's. Wait, but I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) I traded it in for a softball game, but... Very on brand, very on brand. That's just to say that Breakfast at Tiffany's really is so iconic, and the aesthetics of it gets thrown in our faces in so many different little ways. So I don't know if that's the same for you, Sean, because it's more of like a, I don't know, a gendered... It's a gendered thing, I'd say, yeah. For sure. I think the whole movie is so... can be taken so differently depending on your gender. As I do with other movies, it's like, it's a household name. An old movie that's like a caricature of that ladylike character. I think when you think of a 60s movie in New York, like, that's the one, probably one of the first movies that's going to come up because that's how I came into it. I wasn't like Clea that came into it with like glaring white lights ready to, you know, surgically examine and pick at it one by one. I just knew it as a very aesthetic piece of film. And I just took it as, okay, so it's going to be kind of like a rom-com. Like it was surprising in the topics that it actually covered when I started watching it between uh, her would you call it an estranged husband to essentially being a child bride i mean i mean it was it was going on to like 14 my god but i feel like there was just so much pull from oh no but this movie's about how quirky she is um my first time watching it all those like deeper even like darker themes my mind didn't wander on because I was too distracted by all the la-di-da that was going on. Right, yeah. Yeah, same. I mean, as a callback to our second episode, I watched it because of Blair Waldorf. And I knew Audrey Hepburn because I watched Roman Holiday in school because her teacher wanted us to emulate, like, I don't know, Audrey Hepburn's princess-like manners in that film or something like that. Plus, again, on Tumblr, like, I saw the edits of... Holly saying she doesn't want to be caged or whatever. So many GIF sets of that, I remember. And, you know, I felt that. So I was like, okay, let's hold, let's watch this. And when I watched it, same as you, Sean, the darker themes didn't really register quickly. Like, the story was genuinely so tragic, but I did not get that. To be fair, I think the aesthetics of the production is so strong that it's hard to let your mind veer away from it at first watch. Like... Even with all of these white lights that I came in with, like Sean said, it actually took a lot of scrubbing back and forth throughout the film for me to realize that there was actually so much more going on that I missed. I'm not entirely sure that I can say it was designed this way, 
But I think that over time, as people continue to watch it, a lot of the focus really ends up on the aesthetics of the film and the fanfare versus the actual narrative. Which I think is interesting because it became so watered down throughout the years that it affects how you view it. But I do think that because it was the 1960s and there are certain things you don't see plainly on big pictures with big stars such as this film, it needed to rely largely on subtext rather than being overt about the issues and themes. I wonder if it's almost that the production was executed so well. The la-di-da was done in such a impactful way that maybe in large part that's why Breakfast at Tiffany's even came into the public consciousness, right? Like, what if you strip it down, of strip it of all its fanciness and the aesthetic and you just have this uh, tragic story? Do you think it would have reached the same acclaim? Would we have even come across Breakfast at Tiffany's if it weren't for that aesthetic that just gets, you know, you, that you get plunged into the second you start watching? So if you're talking about stripping down all of the aesthetics and turning it into a more serious-looking sort of film, it definitely wouldn't have the same level of ubiquity. But I think that what makes it an interesting film, I would say, is that it plays on the seriousness of these themes with the glitz and the glam of the production. And in some way, I feel like that's quite reflective of its time. Exactly. I mean, aside from the ridiculous yellow face, like Hollywood in the peak of the studio system would not have let Audrey Hepburn be anything less than her image as Audrey Hepburn. It's like, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to put her in a character that isn't as glamorous as she was, essentially. Yeah, it was definitely an effect of it being adapted as a film because Breakfast at Tiffany's was originally a novella by Truman Capote and that was his gripe for the adaptation um, that it was so watered down because the novella talks about these issues very explicitly. It's very gritty. It's very serious. You know, it talked about the issues and highlighted the issues that the film did not. And I think that that may be the reason why so many people sort of considered Holly Golightly as a manic pixie dream girl character. And it was because the film sort of like focuses on these lighter things, these like weird, quirky, fun, glitzy stuff, you know, to call back on a word you used earlier, it's a very watered down version of like the character that she really is. So I think we're all in agreement that it's a little unfair to call her a manic pixie dream girl. But you can see with like the difference in treatment why modern audiences would think so. Definitely agree with that because for me, I was colored by the opinion that it was a romantic comedy. When I initially watched it and saw the ending and saw how the romance played out, I did not care for it. Right. The ending where Paul was telling her, you belong to me or whatever, I really was like, <laughs> bye. Absolutely. <laughs> and then... I didn't really rewatch it anymore and stuck to Roman Holiday because I thought that was a more satisfying story. It was only when I read the piece by Caroline Seed for the AV Club that I was convinced to kind of reconsider and rewatch it, realizing that, wow, there were so many things that I missed watching this as a teenager. And I really should have thought about it a little bit more because the ending is not the film. Yeah, um, you know, bearing in mind, 
I watched this as a freshman in college and it still took me like another rewatch to actually understand what it was going on. I decided to actually just like rewatch it a couple of days after because I was like, I must have missed something. And like when I was sort of like free of that whole idea of focusing on the aesthetic and how pretty things were, suddenly it just made a lot more sense. What about you, Sean? I mean, you're a lot more forgiving about themes like that compared to Clea and I, so you might have a different opinion. I recall the first time I watched it and thinking, ah, oh, the ending's so sweet. Yeah, see, this is why we needed you, Sean. I, I think the, the, the most appropriate is um, I'm ako sa ending. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Valid man, valid. For me, Holly's character read as someone who's trying to marry rich out of necessity. And here we have, well, he's not rich, but he's someone offering her something other than money. And to me, that just felt like, oh, I'm glad she's not just chasing money. Okay, yeah. I lost my point. I had a point somewhere, but I just lost it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, you're right. Paul was offering her a sense of belongingness that wasn't based on economic interests and you know it was genuine companionship i guess because that was different from what holly was initially looking for given that she didn't even want any attachments at all right and it also harkens back i guess to the very like rom-com very classic hollywood idea of love being above all else Mm -hmm. if that was the thing that you were looking for it's very valid it's a very valid um view you know, once you get a little older and once you become a lot more critical of like the media that you consume, then you start kind of like shifting and reframing um, how you see characters in general. And like for me, Breakfast at Tiffany's was one of those things where how I came out of the first watch and the second watch were very, very different. Right. And I really do feel bad that I dismissed it as a young girl. But it, I mean, it's hard not to, right? It it's is hard really not hard. to get into it. Going back a little, though, to, you know, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl conversation, I think that the reason modern audiences saw Holly as one was just because of how aesthetic-reliant the film itself became so based off of. Um, you think Breakfast at Tiffany's, most people are going to give you the imagery and not the actual story. Right, right. 100%. 100%. And so that's why I feel Holly became like a bit of a poster character, like a poster girl for Manic Pixie Dream Girl characters, which is quite, you know, as we've said, unfair because there's so much more complexity to her that only really kind of comes out if you take a more critical look at the film. Which I honestly think is also funny just because of the nature of her character. But I do definitely think that the I don't want to be caged aspect of it plays a huge part in that labeling of Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Plus that similar to 500 Days, we're also seeing Holly's life from Paul's perspective. But yeah, definitely funny that the image that persists about her character is like this elegant lady or... This like socialite type person, right? Yeah, yeah, like a socialite, like New York City royalty. I feel like that also kind of like calls back to it being very much a film of its time. Because, you know, Manic Pixie Dream Girls were not that like the character trope was not a thing. In the 1960s, necessarily? Not, not a conscious thing. It wasn't a conscious thing. There wasn't a name 
for the trope, this was really just how society viewed its women. And so going back to the idea that like 1960s Hollywood just kind of really needed to water down um, the Truman Capote novella, like it kind of just picked out and magnified the parts of Holly Golightly that weren't very substantial, I would say. And then us, as modern viewers, put the label on her retroactively because that's our context now and our understanding now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also such a key part of this is it's on our part as the viewer. Like, definitely, Hollywood was a huge factor, watering it down into its aesthetic. And it's not like the people that were producing the aesthetic did anything wrong, necessarily. Like, they did a great job. But... In that, a lot of people only know the movie by its aesthetic rather than having watched it. In that, a lot of people only watched it for the aesthetic. Or, you know, mm-hmm. they, they came for the aesthetic and they left with the aesthetic and didn't actually spend time with the character. It's, they came for the aesthetic and they, like, only focused on the aesthetic, I think. And because they didn't... They spent the time with the aesthetic instead of the character. That's why in our subconscious, it's like, oh yeah, Holly Golightly, MPBG. Right. Because we, it, our brain just says, oh, what do I remember about the character? And I think that, that's the pitfall of the manic pixie dream girl, right? It's that when you don't spend time with the character, when you focus on the aesthetic, the quirks, that's when you lose sight that wait she's a real person too very similar to real life but (laughs) oh that's another episode (laughs) yeah it's a different conversation but i agree sean when you don't spend time with the character or also don't really think beyond the main character you don't understand everyone else in the narrative but i guess that's why you know the media and the formats and the content and narrative devices and visual devices have all evolved to kind of veer away from that singular perspective on the main character and that singular image of a woman. Which brings us to when films started to deconstruct character tropes, such as the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, again, like what 500 Days of Summer did. For me, I feel like 500 Days of Summer was a turning point. It ushered an era of Hollywood obsession with deconstructing the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. From all of these like films and shows that have sort of like, you know, that show fun, quirky characters and like female leads that were basically just there to help the male leads along, suddenly there was this kind of cultural shift, if I can call it that. And like the next couple of years saw a lot of films that sort of just started like dissecting and deconstructing the way that we saw the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Right, and the very talked about film within this period, I would consider it a modern classic maybe, that kind of tackles this deconstruction in a very specific treatment is Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And this is not surprising. There's no way we could have talked about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl without mentioning Scott Pilgrim. For sure, yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. And I know Sean has a lot of affection for this film. Scott Pilgrim versus the World is still, hands down, like one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always funny because I couldn't ever really pinpoint a specific reason why. Right. Okay. It just felt so smart and cheeky and colorful. And I don't know. 
What did I? Why do I like Scott Pilgrim? Let's find out, Sean. Let's you know. Let's yeah, let's try to let's try to dissect that. <laughs> I feel like I watched this at a point in my life where I was kind of getting tired of the typical like rom com formula. Mm, I see, I see. And the reason why I enjoyed it so much was because it was so very explicitly like a satirical version of all of these rom com tropes. And again, like, obviously, like, with Ramona Flowers, we kind of, like, see the deconstruction of Manic Pixie Dream Girl. But I feel like every character in, in the film is a very much a deconstruction of some sort of trope. Mm. Quick disclaimer that I'm using the film as a reference and not the comics because I have not read the comics. But yes, the film is very tongue-in-cheek because its direction, shout out Edgar Wright, uses the visual language to push the narrative and the production into something that's fresh and fun and enable them to be a little bit more explicit in what they're trying to say. And I feel like that is also the reason why um, we're in agreement in calling it like a successful deconstruction is that you kind of walk into it or at least like you're you're introduced to these characters and you know that they're making fun of something. So not intensely, but they are exaggerated in ways that kind of like allow you to pick out, oh, that's an exaggeration of this trope. And so it sort of like shifts the way that you view the film because you're thinking of them as characters and you're following along with the story, but you're also thinking, oh, what is this, you know, characterization making fun of? What am I looking at? What am I missing? So that's why there are multiple layers to the watching experience. And I think that's why it was so successful in deconstructing like Ramona Flowers as this very banal character. You're, you're, you're following them as characters, not people. Caricatures, essentially. So well, what did you guys learn from the deconstruction of Ramona Flowers? Yeah, what, what, did you, what do you think you t- took away from the MPDG trope after watching Scott Pilgrim? I don't think I necessarily took anything new from the film. Like, with respect to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, definitely with filmmaking. But with the trope, not really, I think. I think personally, I just saw how it was much less debated. And people understood much more clearly that Scott's behavior was terrible at some point, And he also become became better at some point. For me, I think, same with you, Alanis, that I didn't necessarily take away anything new but i feel like the film just did a really good job of kind of highlighting the absurdity that of like of the manic pixie dream girl trope in that a character like an actual person who is literally so boring and just made up of like funky hair and like a couple of quirks is just like that's not a character i feel like what scott pilgrim is able to do is just sort of play around with these character tropes and make them so kind of absurd that you kind of walk out of it realizing a little bit more that it's just it's a trope that may exist in films but it's not something that actually exists in real life so then my question now is in the film you know scott becomes much less of a jerk and realizes he needs to have self-respect and also He needs to respect the people around him, especially the people that he likes. And you see that happening on screen. Do you think Tom was able to do the same in 500 Days of Summer? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. 
Hell no. <laughs> I might have been a little intense with my pessimism just then. No, no, no. But I will say that as much as people would like to believe that Tom was able to grow and be better and all of these things, I think the final scene is pretty much proof that that isn't the case. Just because the countdown goes back to one. Yeah. And that, I think, is definitive proof that the cycle is going to keep going for Tom, and he's just not reached that point where, you know, the girl is not the problem here, Tom. It's you. Scott is the Tom that Tom wishes he can be. Oh my god, probably. Probably. But then I guess I throw the question to you of, do you relate to Scott or how do you relate to Scott as a character? I would say that I relate to Scott, but that, that's mostly because he is the focus of the film, in large part. And I definitely felt the whole realizing it's not love that you should be fighting for, but, you know, self-respect. It's actually funny how it kind of, you know, I'm sure this wasn't the producer's intention, but it calls back to our discussion earlier about Breakfast at Tiffany's and how there's Holly who likes her freedom and essentially her self-respect. Then you have Paul offering her love and the movie ends with her choosing love. And then decades later, you have Scott Pilgrim where Scott is off, uh, Scott earns the power of love and yet fails to defeat his demons. Ooh. But through earning self-respect, that's when he... So I was able to relate to that, I feel. That's a good point. That's a good connection. Yeah, that's a great connection. <laughs> good job. <laughs> Which I think also shows like sort of the evolution of how we view relationships as a society also. And thank goodness, like it's a good thing. It, that's a good thing. Yeah, this is a good evolution, you guys. Let's keep it up. Plus, I think what really works well with Scott Pilgrim is that it's very meta. So it's not just purely subtext because subtext is easier to miss. Exactly, which I was going to say is in stark contrast to Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was anything but meta. I also think maybe that's just a preference. Like, this is how I personally prefer seeing deconstruction of tropes on screen. Like, just because... 500 days uses a different treatment doesn't mean that it's not as good. Maybe I just personally prefer, again, seeing tropes deconstructed with a fantasy-ish element. Like I'm recalling to the film Ruby Sparks, which I really enjoyed. And that film uses magic realism and that genre kind of lends itself to an interesting take on the way women are portrayed in media. Zoe Kazan's character in the film was a fictional woman and then she suddenly became real like very Pinocchio-like and then fights for her agency. I also think it's great that Zoe Kazan wrote the screenplay because not only was it well written but there's just a bit more understanding of the female experience as a creative because she was the one who wrote it. It's interesting in how it's a deconstruction, but not in the Scott Pilgrim way. Yes, and I don't know, maybe some people might find Scott Pilgrim's treatment to be too heavy-handed on the other hand, but I personally don't think so, mostly because there's a lot of other things in the film, like humor and great music and also character growth. And just because it's a little bit more tongue-in-cheek doesn't mean that the characters can't have nuance or aren't complex with all of the films that we've sort of talked about, I think that that's like the thread with all of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl characters. We sort of see that the idea of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl 
is really a perceived thing. Um, we talk a lot about like different characters that like society has put under like the manic pixie dream girl umbrella. But throughout this discussion, we've also been making a lot of points that, hey, they're a lot more complex than we give them credit for. Like, hey, the quirky manic pixie dream girl, like elements of them are very much just caricatures of who they actually are as, you know, people or characters. And thankfully, we have moved on in general from the manic pixie dream girl era. I mean, aside from just eventually nagsawa lang din yung mga tao or, you know, creatives need to take time to find new angles to use. I think in that regard, you know, the death of the trope has come. Truly. We as a society have sort of like progressed past the need for a manic pixie dream girl like trope. And we've sort of, you know, we've moved on to other tropes, not necessarily better or worse, but like, like they're a lot more complicated. Let's just say. I do think, thankfully, we have more and more good female characters. And there are a lot of factors to that. And also just a wealth of parallel issues to talk about in that regard. But in the interest of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope, I think two of the biggest factors to having more nuanced female characters is, one, having more women-helmed works than before. And two, having more avenues and formats coming into the mainstream that are available to creators due to the internet and streaming and the general cultural shift to longer films that give us more time with our characters and we don't necessarily have to stick to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And one character that we love and we've been able to spend time with because of these changes is Maeve Wiley from Sex Education played by Emma Mackey. Sex Education is also created by a woman, and it's also on Netflix and something that a lot of people binge watch. So definitely, we got Maeve Wiley because of these factors. And the character of Maeve, she has elements of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in her, like her hair, you know, her distaste for attachments in the beginning, but she's definitely more than that. I would say that this is a really good example of how following a point of view affects how you see a female character and whether or not you'd classify them as a manic pixie dream girl. Again, hearkening back to 500 Days of Summer, we see everything through the lens of Tom, and therefore there's very limited sympathy towards Summer. But with sex education, you have some time to follow Maeve as a character and just her, not necessarily in relation to Otis or any of the other characters. You see the intricacies of her character a lot more because you see things from her perspective as well. So do you guys think that in the beginning, Otis idealized her in the same manic pixie dream girl way? I think that's how everyone saw her, right? At the school. Yeah, exactly. And that's in large part because, you know, students didn't hang out with her to people who didn't get to know Maeve and just dismissed her as the weird chick. I'm recalling also a scene um, with Jackson because Maeve was like putting him at an arm's length and Jackson was trying to convince her that he isn't idealizing her and that he likes her for her. I could be totally wrong about the words, but I remember the sentiment is the same, which I found was an interesting take or at least an interesting scene. But from Maeve's perspective, 
I don't actually think she thinks he knows her all that well. Because Maeve as a character is that girl who keeps most people at arm's length, just because it's easier to deal with. So for me, having that scene actually deepens both her characterization and her story. It also proves, I think, that people do see her as a manic pixie dream girl within the world of sex education. Because you have this guy that's telling her, I see you, I understand you. But because we're seeing this from her perspective, we can see that, well, maybe no, he doesn't. There's a much more complex and complicated person behind what you see. It's it's like Jackson was really just running off infatuation. Mm. He's claiming that he loves her, but what he's really saying is, hey, I want to just see the person past who you're putting up. While Otis's experience was more... He was already let into her world. Okay, yeah, you guys are right. Quick question, though. Do you guys think that Otis was able to like Maeve more holistically then? I would say yes. And that's purely because Maeve lets him in more. Not a knock on Jackson. I actually think Jackson is a great character. But I think it really depends on how Maeve and Otis's relationship basically progressed throughout the series and that it was a lot more organic and like Maeve sort of or it felt a little bit like Maeve was able to trust him with more of herself if that makes any sense so I feel like if we're talking about like the levels of attraction I feel like Otis was able to sort of see more of Maeve as a real person versus Jackson and that's why I think he liked her for her a little bit more right I, I just, part of me just kept thinking, you know, the fact that he was even denying it at first and the fact that he struggled with that, well, that might not necessarily mean that he liked her for the real person she was. It at least shows that it was to him something more than like a convenience that, oh, you're the girl I'm closest to, therefore I'm attracted to you. Oh my God, that's a good point, Sean. That it's not just like proximity or just desperation for love or attention, which is in media a lot and also in real life a lot. Like to anyone listening, especially the straight boys, please take note. Please don't do that. Stop latching onto people because of some perceived interest that sometimes isn't even there. Honestly, stop. (laughs) You know, whatever, whatever. Sean is laughing awkwardly because he's just like... I know you know what I mean, Sean. GG lang. I have a kind of tangential, Mm -hmm. kind of meta question. Okay. Um, But uh, do you think Zooey Deschanel's character in New Girl would be considered kind of an MPDG? Because I feel like her character, because obviously 500 Days of Summer came out first, and I feel like the quirkiness that we associated her with from 500 Days kind of carried into how her character was portrayed in New Girl. Very valid question. I think that they were playing with that perception of Zoe too. Again, interestingly, the show was created by a woman, Elizabeth Merriweather. So the perspective shifts in that way. But more to the point of the production, I think that it was very much aware of the public perception of Zoe and wanted to use that. 
because Jessica Day in You Girl is the epitome of quirky and upbeat and cheerful and you know she wears colorful clothes and talks to animals and all of this point to the manic pixie dream girl trope but she is not one because not only do we spend time with her throughout the series but she is also the titular character like she is the new girl also the series becomes less and less about that anyway but definitely in the beginning it was an intentional concept and theme to new girl to call to zoe's manic pixie dream girl roles of the past but jessica day is not one and they definitely wanted to break that typecasting perception by using that typecasting perception the thing that kind of helped jess in in new girl also is just the fact that zoe was so typecasted yeah yeah it's a super good deconstruction because it's just like it's by the actress also comparatively like let's say in sex education Mabe was idealized a bit for her manic pixie dream girl like qualities of being a cool detached person but jess was like made fun of for hers like the first episode is the guys in the loft being weirded out by her and the stuff she was saying which i think is a good way to approach the trope in that a manic pixie dream girl if you take her literally and turn her into a real person that's just a really weird person and i can very much guarantee that there's not a whole lot to fall in love with which again i think new girl does very well probably because of the ages of the characters too like they these were adults and you know sex education is in high school but still i think it's also just that perspective matters if you don't spend time with your character you're only ever going to see the superficial right and sometimes it's really because you know these women again we're not at the forefront of the story and we were seeing their lives through the lens of the men who look at them superficially too and look at them with like rose colored glasses so then my next question i guess would be do you think when hollywood started making more like films deconstructing the manic pixie dream girl was it that people kept wanting to deconstruct the trope obsessively or that people were misusing the label at that point and you know labeling characters that they didn't understand a manic pixie dream girl Ooh. oh i feel like the term gets thrown around a lot in general going back to you know the introduction of this episode is that we kind of say oh we can point to a character and you'll get the idea but as we've noticed through this entire discussion no character is an exact man like no character that we've discussed who people often label as manic pixie dream girls are actually manic pixie dream girls for i mean for sure there are a handful of them you know elizabeth town also comes to mind but i would say that society in general has a habit of misusing the term and sort of like slapping it on any female character who might be a little weird and who might be a little unattached I I I was coming up with a kind of theory earlier that um in relation to this meta analysis and Hollywood obsession with the manic pixie dream girl when 500 days of summer came out it was meant to wake us up and say hey um get rid of that the manic pixie dream girl is just an idea you have in your head 
yeah, I feel like a lot of viewers miss that point, which is why, kind of inadvertently, I think um, that's why 500 Days of Summer was a turning point for us from, um, in some weird sense, without 500 Days of Summer, we wouldn't have gotten this version of Ramona Flowers made. Exactly. I think that if you look at the bigger picture, and by bigger picture, I mean like Hollywood industry levels, I think that 500 Days of Summer exactly was a turning point in that it ushered in this like new era. The way that 500 Days of Summer was told as a film, how divisive it was, and how contested and how um, intensely people debated. For me, I think it sparked the death of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. You know, if the, in- if the overall intention of the writers were to say that Manic Pixie Dream Girl characters aren't so one-dimensional and they should be treated as actual complex characters, then it definitely works in the bigger scheme of things Maybe not so much as just one film. It's a true cultural shift. And we can't deny that it has led to so many discussions and think pieces and other works of media. But, you know, we have moved on to different things. And on a final note then, given the life of the trope, what are your thoughts on how the trope progressed? Has it really died? Like, was it a good time for it to be pushed aside as a trope? What do you think? The reception is mixed. I think there are some things that we're still understanding about how the character trope was used, how it worked, and how it didn't work. That, you know, in some sense, like, not everyone's going to come to the realizations that we came to in this podcast. I don't know. Should, should we have focused on that more? Or was it okay for us to just let it die? I can't say for sure, but I'm happy that we saw a positive progression at the very least. I just don't know if the timing was right. Like, or if we got the moral of the story of why it died. Mm, Okay, yeah. Yeah, just like Tom, I guess. Oh my god. (laughs) Have we just moved on to a new trope that we're going to beat until it dies too? I mean, the simple answer is yes, I can think of a few ones, but you know, let's reserve that for future episodes. But I think that the progression of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope is at the very least satisfying because it went through a very organic sort of arc in that it dominated the media and then went through a deconstruction phase. And then now, as we've said, we're sort of moving on to other tropes. I agree, but I guess I would add that we definitely still have a long way to go. We have more characters that aren't one note now, but there's still a lot we have to fight for with respect to not just female characters, but also queer ones and all the many, many, many intersections of race and gender and sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, despite this being a work in progress, I do think the Manic Pixie Dream Girl era served its part in making people understand that we should not have a singular characterization of women in media. And I think that's why it's important that we had that true progression and that we are recalling and talking about that progression today. But I think it's worth asking if we should let the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope die completely. Again, 
We've established that having it as your singular character trait is not a good idea. But taking elements of what we know the Manic Pixie Dream Girl character to be, and then mixing it in with more complex and interesting traits, could that make for better characters? I think that there are still elements of Maeve that may be derived from the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. A part of me also feels like maybe it's kind of a crutch for us to hang on to. Because, you know, we're living in a post-Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, world. Like we talked about Reckless of Tiffany's being a product of its time as well, sort of. Maybe the same can be said for our characters today, right? It gives us something just familiar enough to uh, hang on to and say, oh yes, I recognize elements of this Maeve character in media from before. And then from there, it lets you... So it kind of gets the viewers buy-in to letting you get to know this more complex character. A familiar face at first. It's your hook, basically. Exactly. But I think we can all agree that the progression of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl from, you know, way back when to now is a step in the right direction. I am hopeful we'll get to our ideal in the future. I just hope it's in the near future. And before we end this episode, I would like to give a shout out to the many Manic Pixie Dream Girl characters that we have met in our lives. Thank you for your service because whether or not we like them as characters or if we were so frustrated with them, they did help us realize what we wanted to see instead. And on that note, we would like to hear from you guys. What do you think about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope? Who were the Manic Pixie Dream Girls that you remember or love or hate or look up to? Join us in the conversation over at Twitter at InMediasMess. We'll be interacting more over there. We'd also like to thank Sean, our very first podcast guest. Yay! Thank you so much for coming in and having this really intense conversation with us. I hope you had fun, Sean. Thank you so much, Sean. We're very grateful. Do you have any final words? What do I want to say? To Hollywood, think more closely about your tropes. Why don't you? Because we are, we are catching on. Sounds like a challenge, but that's cool. That's fine. It's not directed to me. And that's it for us this episode. Thank you for your time. And we will talk to you guys next time. All right. Outro music. Music.